From Moses, the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Service, this is the In Her Boots podcast, a show about women cultivating the sustainable and organic agriculture movement and how she does it. My name is Lisa Kiverest, and I founded and lead the award-winning Moses In Her Boots project, providing training, resources, and support for women farmers. I'm a farmer myself, running in serendipity with my family in Wisconsin, and am the author of Soil Sisters, a toolkit for women farmers. The In Her Boots podcast celebrates the collaborative spirit of us women farmers and all women working to transform our food system and steward our land, sharing ideas and inspiration with each other. Whether you're a woman with a dream of starting your own farm or already have your hands deep in the soil, there's something for you here. Be sure to subscribe so you won't miss anything. Marion Holm lives on a small farm in Dunn County, Wisconsin, with an organic custom heifer raising business. She and her husband have now six grown daughters who were integral to starting an organic dairy in 2001, Home Girls Dairy, and have hosted a Moses in Her Boots workshop. Marianne currently serves on the Wisconsin Organic Advisory Council and is a board member of the Menominee Market Food Co-op. For several years, she helped Organic Valley farmers tell their stories and promoted the cooperative business model and organic agriculture to a wide range of audiences. Marianne works off the farm during the growing season as a contracted organic crop and livestock inspector. We are here for this week's In Her Boots podcast, still on our series of resilience this summer and inspiring stories of women farmers who exemplify resilience. And as you will hear about today, grit with Marianne Holm of Home Girls Dairy. Hi, Marianne. Thank you so much for all of your contributions to our women farmer community. Marianne has hosted our In Her Boots workshop before and has a a house full of amazing daughters and and two sons as well, but uh, women who are raised to champion organics in the next generation. And you do you do so much for us, and we thank you. And your story has so many I don't know layers to it. It's evolving that brought you to where you are today, and the true grit of a organic farm woman you are today. Uh, that it'll be really inspiring for a lot of folks who, who haven't experienced all those layers of Marianne Holmes. And perhaps you could start us off by how, um, how your story and how you first came to the farm, because I think this really roots in your, your family's philosophy on knowing when to make change. So take, take us, take us to where things started. Okay. Thank you for having me, Lisa. Um, so Wow, our farm story. Our farm story, who knows where it began? Did it begin when I was in third grade and I read Little House on the Prairie? Or <laughs> um, Actually, um, when we bought our farm, um, we were living in Newport Beach, California. And my husband was working for a corporation and we had our housing paid for out there and we were overlooking the ocean. But we were originally from Wisconsin. And um, my husband's father had Parkinson's disease. And so we knew that, you know, obviously our time was limited. And, and so, you know, my heart was always, you know, let's get back to the Midwest. We can do Disneyland, but that <laughs> is only good for a few days. And my <laughs> life, I really wanted to have it be where that we could enjoy the seasons and such. And my 
we went to the library actually out in Newport Beach and we got a book called All the Places to Love by Patricia McLaughlin. And we read the book and um, and one of the pages it says, my grandfather once lived by the city and he once lived by the sea, but the barn is the place he loved most. Where else can the soft sound of cows chewing make all the difference in the world? When we got done reading that book, our oldest of four girls, Sarah was five years old and she said, daddy, can we buy a farm? (laughs) And, uh, he had, he had spent time as a hired man in high school and had, um, had lived at a farm right near where our farm is today. And so he was in sales and he said, well, let me make some calls. And so he picked up the phone and called his dad and, and, uh, bought a farm over the phone, but this is not how usually people do things. And, it got me to thinking about, you know, there is a certain amount of, well, as you know, Lisa, serendipity in our stories. Yep. And so much of it is kind of a luck thing or just kind of how things worked out. And it just felt, it felt very good to me. I was fine with moving to a farm and raising my kids and not having to worry if they crossed the road. As a matter of fact, when we pulled into the farmstead, there was a driveway and my kids were so used to being in the city is that they, they asked permission to cross the driveway. So, um, (laughs) and it, for us to be here and to not worry if the, if it was raining, they could play in the haymow. If it was dark out, they could be outside and have that safe environment. So that's where we kind of started. And um, I know it's not going to seem like, you know, a lot of other people's stories, but, um, you know, we made our journey in stages too. It didn't just happen all at once. So when we got to the farm, it had been in foreclosure and, or just about to be. And so, you know, the farm challenges have gone on for many decades. And initially we just cleaned it up and we started renting the barn out to somebody for them to milk cows. So yeah, that's the beginning stages, right? Indeed. And how did you know, or maybe you didn't know, but you still acted on, on the farm. And that's often a hard thing for women to do is to take that step. Or we, women who have dreams of starting a farm, and I know we have some women listening or who come to our In Her Boots workshops. How, what words of advice could you give to women in, in making that leap like you did? Were there things going through your mind You know, when we were still living in California, we came home on vacation one summer and I happened to see the newspaper, The Country Today, at my father-in-law's place. And there was a story in there about rotational grazing. And so I had had horses growing up and I thought, you know, that makes a lot of sense to move livestock like on a chessboard, only on the pasture. (laughs) And my husband had had that background of having worked in a dairy barn as a teenager. And so, I don't know, we both had kind of this vision for like, well, what if we did this, you know? And so we attended the first grazing conference before we even had any cattle at all. So you know, where does it start? I mean, you have these seeds inside of you and you think, could we do this? You know, we rented the, we did it in stages again, managing that risk. You know, we, we, we've cleaned up our place and 
finally State Farm was <laughs> willing to insure us <laughs> because there was so many, you know, hazards and electrical <laughs> issues and such. And we, we got it all <laughs> patched up and we rented out the barn to someone and we, we had that little bit of income from the barn and my husband didn't quit his day job right away. And, and actually over the years, I think there was only a year and a half where he actually didn't have another job. So, you know, that might not be something that people want to hear, but it's part of our story, you know, as far as finding work that is compatible with farming. And for him particularly, I thought it was always good that he did work in some capacity off the farm because the interaction that he was able to have with other people, not just, you know, the four walls of a barn and cattle and such. So we moved away from um, renting the barn. And then we did, we kept thinking if we could find the perfect little group of cows, you know, something really tame, because see, I have never milked cows. So (laughs) I, I thought, well, he'll never find that little group. It'll, it'll never happen. And then lo and behold, he says, I found this little herd and these older couple and they're going to bring the cattle and they're going to even come and milk the cows in our barn the first day. So there we go. I was intimidated because I thought, you know, milking cows is like a maternity ward or something. And I haven't gone through midwifery school or anything like this. So there was a lot of learning, which is the enjoyable part for me. I do love to learn. I like to research. I like to go to conferences. I like to attend classes. And so all that background. But at the end of the day, at some point, you have to start, right? I mean, we could read a book about making bread and watch videos and and, and then become very intimidated and never put that, you know, pan in the oven ourselves. But um, so it's a combination of gathering materials and and really mentor you know reaching out for people that have been there and done that I think that was something that really helped us because even in California my husband was talking to farmers in this neighborhood asking them what would you do you know and and we were told you know that farm would be the perfect farm if you were going to graze so you know we did start um we started with a small group of cows of Jersey cows and we added to it we got our fences going and we ship milk conventionally and, um, you know, made the transition to organic. I think we got on the truck in 2004. So it's, you know, a lot of learning along the way. And it doesn't, it didn't happen for us all at once. And there were many times where I thought, I wish I had a grandpa or a grandma that could tell me what to do right now. But our our generation before us really didn't have a lot of input for us or advice because they had gone away from it the generation before that generation. Yeah. So you're really curating the research for a new generation now, but that's a really good point you're making of it's a combination of taking that first step and constantly doing research and talking to people. And as you've been, keep moving forward. But then as we learn with resilience and life in general, we get hit with curveballs sometimes as as you did on the health front. And that's something we haven't had a chance really to talk about yet in our resilience series this summer of those wild cards when things can change literally overnight that affect affect our health, affect our, our business, our families, our farms. And 
your story, again, is so inspiring for us because you went through that and you came out stronger. And can you can you share a little bit of that with us of, of what happened and and how how you worked through it? Well, and this was really um, early on. It was actually in the year 2000. So maybe some people listening <laughs> do not understand the panic that happened during Y2K. But that was a thing. You know, I mean, our computers were going to go haywire and the grid was going to stop working. And there was a lot of panic during that time. So here we are 20 years later experiencing a different challenge in our world. But so there were people canning and people putting up things, preparing for the worst during that year 2000. And I didn't expect that my Y2K was going to be that, that I had thyroid cancer. So, you know, I was sick with unknown, it was unknown what was wrong with me. So I had horrible stomach pain. I couldn't control my body temperature. I was landing in the emergency room about every other week and I couldn't um I couldn't eat anything. And so I lost a lot of weight and I was in so much pain. And the worst part of that process for me was the fact that people couldn't tell me what was wrong. Yeah. And by the time I did end up in the hospital about after 6 months of the emergency room, you know, they really didn't they knew I had something on my thyroid, but they thought that I had a different kind of cancer. So I actually had a bone marrow biopsy and uh, and then like three days later had my thyroid removed. But, you know, there's a lot of things that I could take away from that time. But I mean, one little vignette, I guess, was when I was in the hospital with them really not knowing what's wrong. And probably they were questioning if there was something wrong with me as far as mentally. <laughs> I kept insisting, I am not a sick person and I don't go to doctors and hospitals and there is something wrong. But so I didn't get a lot of validation there. And then at one point, the gastroenterologist sat in my bed in the hospital and told me, you know, well, we're all going to die someday. And I thought, well, that really kind of riled me because I had six kids <laughs> at that point and I thought it's okay with me if I have to go, but I haven't heard it. I've not had that um, voice of God tell me that that's my time right now. So I thought, I don't care what he says, but we got to, <laughs> I'll do what I need to do. And in that point on, you know, I just, I really did buckle down as far as the grit, I guess that's kind of my stubborn side or whatever, but I just thought, no, I'm going to live until I don't live. And so, you know, I did have my thyroid removed and my symptoms, although they were said that they weren't related to the thyroid cancer actually did go away when they took my thyroid out. So I, you know, there's a whole mystery there is like, it's not all the same. We're not all the same. I could go on a lot at length about all of that. But I, I mean, it was a very difficult time because, um, you know, when you think, okay, what's the lesson here? Can I, is there a lesson to learn? Should I, can I quickly learn it and move on? Because this is not fun, right? Not knowing the not knowing part. And then actually had a kind of a weird experience in that I realized that some people, rather than support someone who isn't well, 
they actually kind of get repulsed by it or they turn away from you because, and maybe that's just because of themselves that they feel too much pain or they, they don't know what to say or they don't, I don't know, but it's, it's, it's kind of a isolating thing too sometimes, which you would think would not be, but it actually, I guess what I'm trying to say is that the whole thing made me more compassionate for other people during their times of illness, right? Sure. So that story, you know, it it impacted me tremendously. It changed my whole outlook, you know, as we did become organic. It wasn't because I of my illness that we became organic, but it made me think of different questions and view things differently as we did treat our animals differently. I was always thinking, well, how could this help us in the house? You know, we're doing this with our cattle. How could this help us? You know, how could this mindset or how could this holistic view of health and and management practices of health, not just pulling out a hammer and thinking everything's a nail, but just like realizing that our environment is so important. Our nutrition is so important. And and understanding that, wow, everybody out there that has a herd of cows, they usually have a nutritionist. But do our in our families, we don't really put a lot of people. And at that time, you know, I didn't probably think much of nutrition until until I had that experience and then and then transitioning a herd of cattle. So my kids would probably joke today and it wouldn't probably really be a joke, but they would probably say now that six are grown, they would say, you know, when we, if anybody was sick in our house, my mom would call the organic vet to find out what to do. But <laughs> it was that mindset of holistic thinking. And they're very able to diagnose, you know, the veterinary profession is a little bit more um, able to diagnose things than, in my experience, than my conventional doctors. Interesting. <laughs> So those are our some of our secrets. Thanks, Marianne. I, I love how you use the word holistic to describe so many different things and how they're connected, our personal health, our animals' health, land, organics, all of that together. What advice would you give on that front for women in that we get busy, right? And things, we're always problem solving. We're always putting out fires how do you keep that holistic perspective in check that you shouldn't always be putting out the fire here when there's something you know around the corner that might be causing it how do you how do you how have you incorporated that into your life particularly since you went through that illness oh boy um you know there's this blend of um where we're in the mode of just do the next thing that whole idea of like, we have our rituals, we have our disciplines, you know, we're just doing the next thing. And that can really help us because we've got that stability. And at the bottom line, we're doing the basics, you know, but, you know, I think while we're doing that next thing, whether it is another load of laundry or milking or (laughs) just whatever the basic things are, I think, the benefit to farming, you know, is that a lot of times you're working with your hands. You have time to think, you know, when you're when you're having that dishwashing time or, or the milking time where you're kind of on autopilot, you do have time to think. And so that time for contemplation to figure out, you know, what is my purpose? 
what is the purpose of this? Am I raising corn or am I raising kids? You know, am I, and at the end of the day, what is the bottom line for me? You know, usually it isn't about selling. Yes, we do need to sell. Yes, we do need to do the chores. But for me, it was more of like the principles behind what am I doing? When I was told, well, we're all going to die someday, I thought, okay, but I don't have, when when that time comes, I'll be ready. But until then, I have six children to raise and I need to go home. And as long as we can, we do what we do. And if I feel sick, I'll say, okay, I need to go to the hospital. But you know, like you're you're kind of ready for anything. It's not like we can always be ready for anything. Sometimes we're going to get caught off guard. And sometimes something's going to waylay us where we're not even going to hardly have the strength to even respond. But I think for me, understanding and now that, you know, that was 20 years ago where I had that one health issue. And since that 20 years has gone by, there have been a plethora of other things that I've thought, oh my goodness, you know, how can I go on or how can I, and then I, I think of historically, what did the people that lived here a hundred years ago in my house, because my house is like 120 years old. And I have a picture of these people standing out underneath the same oak trees, but they were little as these giant oaks that are standing there now. And I think, you know, I'm sure they had a lot to do just to keep that house heated. They were chopping wood, they were boiling water. And I think, you know, and are my problems any different than their problems or how, you know, just having that historical perspective to know that our great grandmothers had these same type of things. They dealt with health issues. They dealt with relationship issues. They dealt with the market issues. There isn't really anything new, right? So that sense that historically we're not alone And if truth were to be told, we're really not alone in whatever, you know, health, relational, children, you know, the family dynamics, we're not alone in that either. So I I hope, you know, and a lot of the reasons why I have participated in in her boots, things with where we've gathered women or hosting potlucks and such, it's like, if we could be authentic, and if we could really, you know, I mean, some people aren't open to share. I'm kind of an open person, but I think there's a tremendous amount of support that again, historically women have lent to each other, whether it was, you know, having babies and the neighbors coming over to attend or just living that life together that in our modern age, we've struggled with, right? We're still struggling with that. Yeah. You know, we're not alone and our lives are messy and our health isn't always well. It's not always good. That's so true, Mary. And I had to laugh when you were talking about our grandmothers had the same problem. The thing that jumped into my mind was not like rural internet access issues, <laughs> which I was having here this morning. But, you know, I, I, I'd give that one up in a heartbeat. But, yeah, no, what you're saying is so true. And to create those situations where we can support each other more. On that theme of resilience and us as women, farmers, boosting our resilience. What are some other ideas you've come across personally, either either big picture or, or pragmatic on how we can say build build those tools in our resilience toolbox, things to try? Well, I think we can be purposeful about it. I think, you know, I think some of this stuff is just 
maturing and growing older. And <laughs> we all probably think of ourselves as just kids, even though we're not kids anymore. <laughs> and so it's kind of like, you know, life throws you these curves and you're like, oh, I don't want to, you know, really grow up or I don't want to really you know, mature in that way. And, and you're like, you know, it's just going to be harder if you don't. <laughs> That's the way I talk to myself. And I, and then I thought, you know, you've searched out materials for organic or grazing or this and that and health and whatever. And it's like, you know, if you see you've got some work to do, you can search out those kind of materials too. And I hope people will find this series, you know, something that they're thinking, you know what, I do need to build resilience. I do need to find you know, for myself during the pandemic, you know, when that really hit, I thought, what's going on inside of me? You know, I'm realizing I need to take this time to really, you know, I tuned into some online yoga classes, which I'm, that's not my forte, but I thought, well, the benefit in doing it online, nobody can see you right now. <laughs> so I did that. And, um, <laughs> you know, realizing, well, my mindset too, you know, and, 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 and checking yourself and thinking, you know, I've got to be able to help other people. And unless, whether it's my adult children now or neighbors or friends, um, and my, and myself, you know, this is going to benefit me, but through me, it can benefit others. So if I can take some time to, um, figure out, oh, when I eat this, I feel terrible. Or <laughs> if I don't do this, I can't literally walk across the room, you know, because I'm not flexible enough. I mean, putting the mask on like the airplane attendant would tell us, you know, put the gas, you know, put the mask on yourself first, and then you can do your children. Yeah, that's kind of where where it's got to start. I, I don't I don't think it's intuitive for us to put the mask on, put the oxygen on ourselves first. I think that a lot of times we end up with some kind of wake up call or some kind of crisis before we do it. And I don't know that we can avoid those crises or wake up calls, but, you know, because we can't do it all perfectly. And it's, you know, I think that's one, another myth that we need to dispel that we do things perfectly or that there's one way or that this is what, doing a good job looks like you know again that whole concept of life is messy but it's okay we don't have to be perfect to be good and so we're, we're not going to do it perfectly hey that's a good note to wrap up on thank you so much marianne for sharing your story much appreciated you're welcome lisa it was good to be here thanks for listening to our in her boots podcast I'm your host, Lisa Kiverest, with the Moses In Her Boots Project. This episode's audio engineer was Liam Kiverest of TechSocket.net. The podcast was brought to you by the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Service, Moses. The mission of Moses is to educate, inspire, and empower farmers to thrive in a sustainable organic system of agriculture. For more information on Moses, In Her Boots, and a bounty of organic resources, check out mosesorganic.org.